Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. You, the God of armies, tell us, behold, he is coming. And he is, and he has. Prepare our hearts for this coming that we might be ready to delight in him as you delight in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and sing them. Our responsive reading this morning comes from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 3. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you. And sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious and holy Father, we are here this morning in your presence because you have called us. The creator of all things calls us in love, and there is no other choice in the world but for us to come. It is our joy and our honor to make a joyful shout to you along with the rest of your creation. We are here to sing out the honor of your name and make your praise glorious. Your works are awesome. And we ask that you would make our hearts ready to celebrate them with bold, robust, and hearty worship. We thank you that there is no other God like you in all the universe. You made the sea and the dry land. With the power of your voice, you brought forth the Pacific Ocean and all the many leviathans that swim beneath its surface. You, with one word, placed Orion in the heavens and set the sun and moon in their orbits. Your greatness brings down every enemy and causes all flesh to submit to you in humility. May our praises bring your name glory this morning. 
We boldly ask for you. We boldly ask for this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. If you're following along with us in our To the Word Bible Reading Challenge, you'll know that this week we came to the book of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 2, we find David, the newly anointed and heroic king of Israel, hiding in a cave in the wilderness. And he's hiding from a raving lunatic. David was certainly no coward, but he refused to raise his hand against Saul, who was both his father-in-law and the outgoing king of Israel. Saul was both wicked and capricious, as well as intent on killing David and all of David's family. So David, trusting in the, pro- uh, in the promises of God, fled temporarily into the wilderness to wait and see what God might do. While in the wilderness, we are told that, quote, his brothers and all his father's house heard it. They went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. Now we can see some similarities today. Most of the rulers we read about in our news feeds seem to be afflicted by the same evil spirit that drove Saul mad. However, their capricious wickedness has been relatively restrained and quite tame compared to Saul. I would wager that very few of you here today have ever had a crazed governor try and pin you to the wall with a spear. So while there are some similarities... If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have it incredibly good. Here we are, meeting in the open, Bibles in hand, bearing the name of Christ freely and without fear. We have running water in every home, heat with the flip of a switch, merchants that gladly sell us the agricultural bounty of the world for a fraction of our paycheck. We have chariots that, with the simple flick of a wrist, whisk us away to any desired location, and we have devices in our pockets that carry the world's information accessible at the speed of light. While the doom and gloom news cycle would like you to believe that the world is ending, 99% of their crises exist only between our ears and within our anxious hearts. That's why my encouragement to you this morning is to stay and fight. Stay and fight. Don't abandon your people or your place. Stay at your post. God has put you here in this physical geographic location for a reason. He placed you in the midst of these living, breathing, flesh and blood image bearers for a reason. He would see you keep your hand to the plow and continue the work of building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He would have you join his plan, his glorious plan, to cover the earth with the gospel as the waters cover the sea. He has given you the Holy Spirit and placed you within this local body of believers so that he might use your gifts in building a new Christendom right here in Lewis County. So don't flee. And if you must flee, do so like David and do so temporarily. That way, while you wait, you can see what God will do. Many of you have been here in Lewis County for several generations. Some of you are new to the area, but don't abandon the roots that you've made. Don't abandon those generational ties simply because we are at this moment 
living under petty tyrants. Think about what life will look like here in Lewis County, or in Washington State even, if God's people stay, unite, worship together, and keep up this birth rate. (laughs) Worship is warfare, and children are weapons in the hands of warriors. We should have lots of them, and we should all as a church train them to love Jesus and set for them an example not to flee, but to be devoted to the welfare of the city, to dig in, stay, and fight for what is true, good, and beautiful. We should band our forces together into small or large but growing pockets of resistance who choose to fear God rather than man. If we do this, and if we can avoid the siren song of individualism, we can, like David, wait to see what God will do. We may find, like David did, that there are many who are willing to join us in the wilderness for a time with King Jesus, the new and better David, as the captain over us. But this kind of reformation can only begin with confession of our sins. So if you are able, will you please kneel with me? Scripture says in Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Let's confess our sins in prayer. Gracious and Holy Father, we confess to you our corporate sins. We come to you on our knees because no man can endure the day of your coming or stand when you appear. As your people, we have been guilty of giving up and fleeing the battlefield instead of digging in and fighting. We are all so affluent, so full of money and resources and possessions and other mammon that we wish to protect that our, that, that our first instinct is to protect that and to leave when things get tough. Make us a people who are willing to joyfully accept the plundering of our property, knowing that we have and will have a better possession in your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, for having hearts of water, always seeking the path of least resistance. Forgive us for our selfishness and our prideful conceits. Refine us, purify us, purge us from the leaven of unbelief. Forgive us for being wise in our own eyes. We confess our own individual sins to you now in Salem. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 66, verses 8 through 12, O bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear and believe the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. Morning, morning. Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1. Through six. These are the words of God. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray together. Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Would you open our hearts and open our eyes to receive what you have for us from it? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are a lot of unfamiliar faces here, but it's great to be down with all of you. Um, as I've come down to preach here at Christ Covenant Church, I've been working through uh, the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, and, or section by section. And we come now to chapter 4. Uh, I have emphasized over and over again, this is just to recap, and, and for those who are um, new to this series, um, we've emphasized how in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul addresses the Ephesian churches or the Ephesian Christians and emphasizes to them over and over again the grace of God. He cannot stop talking about the grace of God to the the believers that he's writing to. And it's striking how in the first three chapters there is not a single command that he gives to them except for one right in the middle of chapter 2 and that is to remember The only command that is given to the Ephesians in the first three chapters is to remember what God has brought them out of. And then we get into the the last half of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where all of a sudden Paul turns and he begins to exhort the believers and to tell them and instruct them in how Christians are to live. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. We come now to the hinge or the pivot point of this letter. In the first half, it's all um, about the grace of God, the things that need to be believed in order for Christians to live. And then the second half is the things that Christians are to do standing on that belief, standing on that ground. Paul has laid the doctrinal foundation that Christians must stand on in order to then walk in the works that God has set before them. He says in the, in the middle of chapter 2, Uh, This this wonderful um, verse about the grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God has raised Christians from death in their sins, and he's given them new life, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been created for good works, which God has set before you to do. God has already planned those works out ahead of you, and he set them before you for you to walk in. And so this is what the second half of Ephesians is focusing on. So Paul begins this section by saying that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Walking is a theme that runs through these next couple chapters of Ephesians. It it shows up five different times in Ephesians. And it describes the way that Christians live and act. This idea of walking is in in the Greek is not just the act of walking, but it involves walking along a way, walking along a certain path. It describes then the way that Christians are to live as Christians. And so Paul is beginning to answer the question, or as Francis Schaeffer put it, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? With all of this being true, all the grace of God, the fact that he's raised us from death in our sins, he's given us new life in Christ, 
Christ has poured out himself for us. We've been brought together, Jew and Gentile uh, have been brought together in unity before one God. We now have access to the Father with all of these things in mind. How then are we to live? So this is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, these first few verses here. It is striking also as we look at these verses that um, Paul again does not give direct commands, but he does give descriptions of how Christians are to walk. But here he's exhorting these believers, he's calling them to something, but it's not a direct command. He'll get to some of those later on, but I think he's sort of building up to it and continuing to exhort them and describe to them what this should look like, what this walk is. Paul begins by identifying himself once again as the prisoner of the Lord. Paul had said this at the beginning of chapter 3. And here at the beginning of chapter 4, again, he says, I therefore, uh, and again, that therefore is sort of the hinge of the whole book. Okay, With everything that's come before, therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul is both a physical prisoner for the sake of the gospel. He's writing this from prison. He's writing, and again, this is just... It is amazing to consider. Paul is overwhelmed by the grace of God in prison. Paul Paul can't stop writing, can't stop talking about what God has done and the amazing grace that he has poured upon Paul and upon the Ephesians, and he does so from a prison cell. He's a physical prisoner for the sake of the gospel. He's also captive to the gospel. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Jesus caught him. And he can't get away. And he's, so he's a prisoner to the gospel and to its Lord. And so as such, he beseeches, which is a strong verb in the Greek, an, an exhortative verb. He beseeches the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of or appropriate to or fitting of their calling. Paul has mentioned before that God has raised these people from the dead. He's called them out of their sin and they are now to live according to this calling. A wonderful example of this from the life of Jesus was, is the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus was a dead man. He was in a tomb, and he had been there for four days, and his sisters tell Jesus when he comes there, it's going to be stinking, he's going to be rotting already. What are you thinking to open up the tomb? Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He calls him out. And Jesus, when Jesus gives him the call to live again, Lazarus simply walks out of the tomb. And it is fitting, it is right, it is worthy that he do so. This is the only appropriate response to the call of Jesus. Paul has told us that we all once walked in death, but those in Christ have been called to new life. Adopted as sons and heirs and seated with Christ. And so therefore, again this hinge word in the book of Ephesians. Therefore, Christians should walk and live like we actually believe these things are true. If you've been given new life, then Jesus calls you to live like you have new life. If Jesus has given you a new heart, he calls you to live like you actually have a new heart. It's a truth, and you're to stand on that truth and to believe that truth, and that then instructs you in how you live. God's grace leads to human activity and human responsibility. And this is something that is very clear in the book of Ephesians. 
It's God's grace first, but God's grace doesn't end there. He also doesn't end in just your salvation. He gives you grace also to then live out that salvation, to walk in that salvation. His grace inspires you and, and pushes you on to activity and responsibility in your life. In Romans chapter 12, Paul gives a parallel exhortation. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And we'll look at this together. There's a number of different parallels here that I think are worth pointing out. <clears throat> so Romans chapter 12. I'll read the first um, three verses here and, and refer back to it at different times. <clears throat> Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Notice the similar opening there. I beseech you and a therefore. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Uh, Paul, in this chapter, in this letter to the Romans, um, also calls Christians to present themselves or to live a certain way, to walk worthy of their calling. Romans chapter 12 marks, similar to Ephesians chapter 4, marks a pivot point in the book. Chapters 1 through 11 in Romans is very much Paul laying out a very precise, logical argument, doctrinal argument, with very few exhortations or commands in terms of what Christians should be doing. It's very much a, a, a doctrinal treatise. But then in chapter 12, with this verse, I beseech you therefore, Paul shifts, and he begins to exhort the Christians not just in what they should believe, but how they should live. And he begins by saying that they are to present their bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. This, of course, calls to mind the Old Testament sacrifices that were to be perfect, that were to be spotless and presented to God on behalf of the one who is offering them. Paul is basically saying there's no need for you to offer someone in your stead. That has been done. Christ is in your stead. And so now you live and walk and act and breathe and sleep as a living sacrifice. We are to be living sacrifices before God in everything that we do. And consider this, because we are living sacrifices, living sacrifices, not one-time sacrifices, not, not um, sacrifices at one point and then we go to sleep and we're no longer living sacrifices. You are living sacrifices. Because of this, at no point do we stop being a sacrifice to and for God. And this means that wherever you are, is an altar. Wherever you are is an altar for you to lay yourself down. Has Jesus given you a new heart? Has Jesus given, has he poured out his grace for you? Then you are a living sacrifice. You are that. It, the, the command here is, he says to present yourselves as living sacrifices, but the presumption is that you are living sacrifices. This is what you are. And you are to live according to that. And this means, wherever you find yourself, whether it's in, in the office at work, whether it's with your children at home, whether it's with your spouse, 
whether it's with any of a number of relationships or circumstances, wherever you find yourself is an altar. And what does a sacrifice do at an altar? It dies. Wherever you find yourself, that is where God has called you to die. He's called you to die. Here this morning, as you're sitting here listening to this, He calls you to die. And then when we get out of here and we go and have our fellowship time and you go home and you are getting, uh, uh, everybody's recovering from the early Sunday morning and the wranglings that go on at church, he calls you to die. He calls you to die in your attitudes. He calls you to die in your voices, in your thoughts, in your actions. He calls you to die. But this is actually wonderful news for Christians because we believe in a God who has conquered death. And if he calls you to die, it is only because he has also called you to walk out of the tomb, to come off the altar. And this is what God calls us to every day. So this is what Paul has in mind, I think, when he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. You've been called to new life, but you've also been called to die like Christ. And if you've been called to die like Christ, you've been called to live again. So back now in chapter 4 of Ephesians. This worthy walking, Paul characterizes first by lowliness and gentleness. He's going to describe in verse two, verses 2 and 3 the way in which, or some adverbs of, what this walking looks like. He's not necessarily saying that this, uh, these particular are the things in which you're walking in, although it includes that. But I think more he's answering the question, what kind of walking are we talking about? What kind of walking is this? And I think this because he says that we are to walk with all lowliness. It's the adverb, it's, it's an adverb that goes along with our action. With all lowliness and gentleness. These are, of course, um, you, you're uh, uh, probably familiar with these adjectives as ascribed to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. He is lowly and gentle of heart. And lest we get confused, remember that this is Jesus' description of himself right after he has pronounced woes upon Capernaum and uh, these other cities that have rejected him. Is to be lowly and meek, to be lowly and gentle of heart is not to say you can't stand on the truth and speak strongly. But it is to say that you speak with a certain demeanor and a certain confidence and a certain acknowledgement of who you actually are. We'll see this in just a moment. Again, note the parallel from Romans chapter 12. Paul has said in in Romans uh, that we are to uh, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And here he says, walk with all lowliness and gentleness. These are words that mean humility and meekness. We humbly acknowledge that our salvation and blessings are not of ourselves. We humbly acknowledge that as we walk in the walk that God calls us to. It's not of ourselves. It's the grace of God. And we humbly acknowledge that our union with Christ and acceptance before God is not from anything in us to boast in. It's not in us that we've been called to Him. It's not in us that he has saved us, but it's because of Christ. So this is the lowliness with which we are to walk. If we understand that, then that actually gives us great humility in our other relationships. Just like if we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
that actually enables us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we humbly acknowledge, if, we're, if we stand in humility before God, that actually enables us to stand in humility before others. We walk with meekness, which is opposed to malice and wrath and outbursts of anger. Meekness is, um, is not weakness. They rhyme, but they're not the same thing. Meekness is not weakness. Rather, meekness is a settled confidence in what God has said, which dispels any need to assert oneself over others or grasp for approval. If you are meek, it's because you trust God. A proud man, an angry man, a a man full of outbursts, is a man who does not have confidence. And, And so he makes up for it. He compensates for it by all of these these outbursts, all of this wrath, all these exterior things. But a man with meekness, a woman with meekness is settled, confident, not in themselves, but in what Christ has done for them and who God has said that they are. Paul goes on to say that we walk with long-suffering. Synonym for this would be patience. Long suffering, suffering long with the circumstances that God has given to you, with the people that God has given to you, suffering long. We bear with one another in love. We abide with one another, we dwell with one another, and we do so knowing that the other person is sinners, are, are sinners. And acknowledging that we ourselves are sinners and that there are bumps and scuffles and sin that take place between sinners. And so we bear with one another in love. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 4 quotes from Proverbs saying that love covers a multitude of sins. And if love covers a multitude of sins, how much more does it cover when those sins are not malicious or intended? Those bumps, those disagreements those things that are done without malice, does love cover those? All the more. We bear with one another in love. And we do this remembering how patient and long-suffering God has been with us. When you are tempted to lash out at someone because of how they have treated you, I think one of the most important things to remember is what has God done? In you? Has He borne with you through your shortcomings, through your sins, through your failures? Have you dishonored Him? Have you been disrespectful to Him? Have you misrepresented Him? And does He bear with you? How much more should you bear with someone else, especially someone else that He died for? We bear with one another in love. And finally, all of these things work together in concert as we then seek to keep the unity of the Spirit. Verse 3. Paul exhorts us to keep this unity, which implies that it is something that is granted. It is an objective unity. It's not one that we achieve or create. Paul doesn't tell us to make sure that you are unified. He says, keep the unity of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, then you have this unity that is in Christ And you are exhorted to live like it, to keep it, to tend to it. Now, there is a unity that matures or grows uh, between individuals and between churches and between um, the church at large. 
Uh, And we will see this actually later in Ephesians chapter 4. But Paul here is describing, again, an objective unity. It's a unity that we have. The church and all who are in it have this unity described here simply by virtue of having the Spirit. And so in other words, God says that Christians are united. Christians are united. This is why in the Apostles' Creed, which we recited earlier, it it describes the Holy Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about the Catholic. It's It's a word that means the whole. The holy, whole, complete church. This is because there are saints that have gone before us in time. There are saints that have gone before us today on the other side of the world. And there are saints meeting uh, in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And in Christ, if if we are pursuing Christ and if we are churches following Christ, then we are one Catholic church. We are one body, one bride of Christ. And so God says that Christians are united. You are united in this room with the people that you are worshiping with in the local church. And churches, faithful churches, are united in in Christ. Uh, Just like we have saints here from Calvary Chapel this morning and from Christ Covenant Church. These churches are united in Christ. They are one in Christ. And so we ought to live like it. Our walk should be characterized by striving to hold that unity. And again, this is true at a church level, and it's true at an individual level. Christ has saved people, individuals, and those individuals make up churches, and those churches make up the body of Christ. And so we are to live as though we have unity, not, in, not pretending to have unity, not, um, not putting on a show of unity, but rather actually living it out. What do people that are united do for one another? What do people that are united, uh, how do they see one another? How do they treat one another? We ought to live like these things are true. And all of this stems from a willingness and an ability to see oneself rightly. If you, going back to how Paul begins this, our walk begins with all lowliness. That doesn't mean thinking that you're a worm. Right, uh, C.S. Lewis is uh, known for saying that humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself, lower on the totem pole, but humility really is thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of others, being directed towards others. And, but in order to do that, we must see ourselves rightly. How does God see me? How does, what does God think of me? How does he evaluate me? How do I measure up to his standards? Honestly. And knowing that I fall short of those standards, but knowing also that Christ died for me and because of that, God looks at me and he says, well done. He looks at me and says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That gives me a confidence and a meekness to view others in the same way. And again, this is not without, uh, this is not setting aside God's standards for sin. This is not setting aside the need to call a brother to correction. This is not calling, setting aside the need to rebuke those that are walking away or walking unworthy of their calling. But it all begins with a right view of ourself, a right view of God, and of how God views us. 
acting and living with humility, meekness, patience, bearing with and striving for unity with one another. All of this comes from knowing the unity that we have in Christ by the Spirit. We are bound together by the peace we have with God and with others. This is what Paul emphasized in chapter 2, the second half of chapter 2. Let me read for you verses 14 through 18. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Christ has done this. He has made peace and he is our peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. If you are a Christian, you have unity with the person sitting next to you. That husband, that wife, that child, that neighbor. And Paul is calling you to walk worthy of that unity. Walk worthy of that. Matthew Henry says, We do not walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith we are called if we be not faithful friends to all Christians and sworn enemies to all sin. This is what it means to walk worthy of your calling with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, striving to keep this unity. I want to spend some time now looking at the second half of this passage, verses 4, 5, and 6. Paul goes on to describe this objective unity, and he identifies seven ways that Christians have unity. First thing we should point out is as you look at these things, you can see um, that Paul, is, Paul identifies each member of the Trinity here and shows that they have different, though not entirely distinct, roles in the life of the church. Verse 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit and one hope. Um, we, have, we are one body because the spirit unites us together. And this one body, united by the spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation, has one hope. We all share in that hope because of the spirit in us. And then verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Throughout the New Testament, Lord, most of the time, refers to Jesus Christ. And so we have one Lord, and we have one faith in that one Lord, and we have one baptism representing that one faith in that one Lord. This is the work of the Son. And then finally, one God and Father of all, who is over all, who works through all, and who is in all. So you see the Spirit, the Son, and the Father all represented here. Let's look at these a little more in a little more detail. First, Christians are one body with Christ as the head. And this is because of the one spirit who works in all of us, guaranteeing our inheritance. One of the things that is, uh, stands out as you look at these items that Paul is identifying about our unity is that he's addressed many of these things already in Ephesians. He's told us in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that we are one body. In Christ. Christ is the head of the church and we are his body. He's told us that the Spirit works in us <coughs> and is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the <coughs> excuse me. 
He's the stamp of approval upon us, which guarantees our inheritance in Christ. Uh, Paul mentions this in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is true just as it is true that we have a shared hope of our calling, which is that inheritance. We have this hope because of the spirit that is in us, because we are one body in Christ. In verse 5, just uh, trying, trying, to, trying to thread all these things together, this inheritance that we have, that we've been promised, is shared because we all have one Lord, Jesus Christ. We have one common faith in him, for he is the only way. John reminds us of this in John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thank you. And there is one baptism that marks those that are in Christ. And so all of this blessed unity is due to the one God who has called us and made us his sons. And so... Paul identifies him as the one God and Father. He's called all of us to be his children in this one faith, this one baptism, this serving this one Lord, in this one hope, in this one body, by the one Spirit. If you look with me at verse 6, Paul says that, he, that this Father is above all. I think... Um, there's some ties here to the, to the things that Paul has identified in the first couple verses here. There's one Father who is above all. And that reminds us to be humble and meek toward one another. It reminds us that He is above all, and so I ought not to raise myself above my brother. He works through us all, which reminds us to be patient and bear with one another. If God is working through me, and I desire people to be patient with me, then that reminds me that God has promised he's also working through my neighbor, my spouse, my child, my friend. And reminds me to be patient and long-suffering and bearing with them. And he works in us all, reminding us to keep this unity since it comes from him and not from ourselves. This unity is not something that we manufacture. It's not something we accomplish it, it, I think this is important. This unity that Paul describes here is not something we accomplish by meeting together in worship. It's not something we accomplish by having fellowship meals after church or Bible studies in the middle of the week or having one another into our homes. We don't accomplish this unity by this, by, by doing these things. It is an objective unity. You already have that unity. And you are called to live like you have this unity and live it out. And so because we have this unity in Christ, we gather together for worship. Because we have this unity, we meet with, in fellowship after church. Because we have this unity, we gather together to study the word. These are all done because of this thing that God has done. Now, when Paul is talking here about unity, and especially <clears throat> when we recognize that he is talking about the unity of the church, he's talking about the unity of individuals among, within the church, but also of the church as a whole, this raises, I think, an important question. What are we to make of all of the divisions that we see in the church? If Christ, if Christ has one body, why does it seem like there's so many bodies? 
If Christ has one body, why are there so many differences and divisions and what seem to be schisms? What do we make of this? There's three things I want, I want you to consider with regards to this before we close. The first is that certain divisions, certain separations are necessary. And as such, they are not actually evidences of disunity, but rather are means of preserving true unity. Certain divisions, um, especially divisions over what we would call primary doctrine um, issues, the kinds of things that come up in the Apostles' Creed. Um, For instance, if a church is beginning to follow um, not just the one Lord, but maybe in some way they're following another Lord, or they've redefined who that Lord is. If they've redefined who Jesus is, um, take for instance saying that he is not fully God and fully man. If a church is going to teach that Jesus is part God and part man, then that would be the kind of thing that is worthwhile dividing over. Because in doing so, we are actually preserving unity. It's not disunity within the church. It's preserving unity. So that's the first kind of division. We need to recognize that some divisions are necessary. They're needed to preserve the unity that God has given to us. Second, there are other divisions that really are wrong. These are the result of not walking in the way that Paul describes in verses 1, 2, and 3. These are divisions that are the result of not walking with lowliness and gentleness, bearing with one another, being patient, and actually seeking to preserve unity. These are things like sectarianism and denominationalism and other divisions that are derived from pride and envy. Pride and envy, this this lack of lowliness, this lack of bearing with one another and thinking of oneself more highly than one ought to think is is the root cause of all kinds of real divisions that God hates. And so we, we ought to walk in the way that Paul calls us to here in order to seek to preserve the unity, in order to not have these divisions, these schisms. Okay, so there are some divisions that are wrong, and, and we ought to repent of those. We ought to ask God to uh, send his spirit and restore what has been broken. But third, and I think in some ways this is maybe the most important thing for us to consider, there are some things that we think of as divisions, but they are not actually divisive. Okay? We need to understand the difference between unity and uniformity. And that is a very important difference. There can be real unity, and actually in some ways there can only be real unity where there is not uniformity. Uniformity comes from tyrants. Having everybody dress the same, walk the same, talk the same, but uniformity, uh, but I'm sorry, but true unity does not mean uniformity. Among individuals and collections of individuals and collections of churches, among denominations, there are differences of ministries, differences of gifts, abilities, cultures, languages, and these are not differences that ought to cause us to dismay. We all, if, if these churches, collections of churches, individuals are truly following one Lord, then we have one Lord and we have that unity. And I think there is a, a real 
um, beauty. There's danger in this whole idea of having separate denominations, of course. But there actually is real beauty in it as well and real faithfulness. Consider God himself. He is one God and three distinct persons. There's unity and diversity in God himself. Why would we be surprised when there's similar things going on in his church? We see, we know that already. There's one church, there's one body, and there's a lot of individuals within that body. And that's a good thing. Could it not be also that there's one church, one body, and lots of collections of churches within that body that look different, that do different things, but that all serve one Lord? And so we can have unity with those who disagree with us on doctrinal issues. And when we disagree with them, assuming it's, again, it's not one of those primary doctrinal issues, the kinds of things that are summarized in the creeds that we recite. When we disagree, we ought not to be surprised or dismayed that there are such differences. That's not to say that with those differences, we seek to... um, argue with one another and discuss and to come to a greater unity. That's actually what Paul's going to describe later in Ephesians 4. But we ought not to be dismayed about the messiness of Christ's body. This is part of God maturing us and growing us into that more perfect unity. It's not something we are to grasp after, though. It's not a unity that we're promised to have now. And so we wait and we continue walking worthy of the calling, standing on the unity that we do have and trusting God to mature us and grow us up. So to wrap this all up, there are things that Christians are called to do and to walk in. We're beginning to, we're beginning to see that in Ephesians now. Paul's exhorting these Christians in a particular way of living. But I want you also to see that these are things, the things that Paul mentions here describe the Christian walk as much as they are things that he calls them to. In other words, these are not things that we choose to do in order to mark off a checklist that God has given to us. It's not as though you you have a list on your wall of humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another and striving to keep the unity. And I'm just going to check each of those off throughout my day. No, rather we believe in him and we believe what he has said. And if we really believe that, if we really believe that he has raised us from the dead, that he has called us, then our lives will be more and more marked by these, uh, as I've said before, these agenda, these things to be done. Now, obviously these things, we often fall short of these things. We lack these things. We lack Lowliness, we lack gentleness, we lack patience, we lack bearing with one another, we lack actually wanting to stand in this unity that God has given us. And so when these things are lacking, where they are lacking, repentance is needed. Repentance is necessary. Do you lack humility, meekness, patience, bearing with the people that God has placed around you? Striving to keep that unity. Striving to to enjoy that unity. Are you holding back from being a part of a local fellowship because you don't see that need to keep that unity? 
If these things, if the lack of these things describes you, then the call to you is to repent. To repent of that. Because that's not walking worthy of who you are in Christ. Repentance then would be grounded on an acknowledgement that when we do not live like the followers of Christ, it is because we do not believe like followers of Christ. If you are not living like a follower of Christ, it's because you do not believe like a follower of Christ should. A follower of Christ believes that God has given them a new heart and that that means they should live a certain way. And that God gives you the grace to live that way and to grow in your sanctification. And so in our repentance, we turn back first to Christ, to trusting in him, to not trusting in ourselves, trusting in his grace. Repentance then means turning back to Christ, picking up your feet and walking, worthy of the calling that you've been called. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his words to churches centuries ago. And we thank you for how true they are for us. Pray, Lord, that the things that we've looked at this morning would stay with these people, convict them. And in their conviction, they would turn not to try to do better, but rather turn to Christ to trust in Him and place their full trust and full faith in Him. And then, Lord, would You pour out Your grace upon them? Would You grant them victory? Would they learn to walk worthy of the calling that You've called them to? And we thank You for the way in which You are growing up this church and these families, these people here, to walk this way more and more in the grace that You've given. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to our time of communion. At the Lord's table, the unity that Paul describes in the beginning of Ephesians 4 that we just talked about is, again, an objective unity. It is a unity that we already have as Christians. As such, it is a unity that we are called to keep. In other words, a unity that we are to practice. We don't practice it in order to make it real because it is an objective unity. And at the same time, as we practice it, God uses this practice to strengthen our enjoyment and our experience of it. This, of course, is part part of what's going on here at the Lord's table every week. We are practicing the unity of the body of Christ. We are not grasping for it or trying to glue pieces back together, but we are enjoying it and participating in the unity that God in His grace has given to us. This is one good reason to practice it every week then. We need more practice. And this also should inform our eating throughout the rest of the week. Table fellowship, sitting together around a meal, is a practice of Christian unity. If there are any here who have not been baptized and received this objective sign of this unity with Christ, then we would ask that you not partake of the bread and wine, but do come and talk to one of the elders if you would like to join in this unity. And to all who are united to Christ as demonstrated in baptism, you are invited to participate. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Would you stand now for the charge and benediction? If you have been raised to new life in Christ, then live like it.
walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And when you need to remember what that looks like, Ephesians chapter 4, 1, 2, and 3 gives you adverbs to describe that walk. Walk that way and do so not because, again, not because it's a checklist of things for you to do, but because that describes who you are in Christ. Here now the benediction from your Lord. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.